So let me start in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 4. And I'll read to the end of Ephesians chapter 4, the end of that chapter. So we'll read and then um, I'll pray. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start in verse 17. Sorry. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Now Gentiles were a way of saying unbelievers, those did not profess Christ or um, they were just kind of outside of the life of God. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, um, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but this is not the way you've learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, and this is probably very familiar now as we've been talking about this new self, old self, um, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, was corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, verse twenty-five, having put away the false, uh, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those with anyone in need. Let no corrupt, um, corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but, is what, but only such is good as for the building up that fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice." Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Let's let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word, and and as we've been talking about this this series on, um, been this series talking about our new identity in you. I pray that you would cause it to be the truest thing about us, that we would operate out of this place where we're secure in you, where we're here. Um, the voice of our God saying that you are my beloved and you I'm well pleased. Not because of anything we've done or anything that we don't do, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so from there, I pray that you would help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, lives that are worthy of the calling by which we've been called, lives that live into this new identity that you've given us. Show us what this means, especially when it comes to our work. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been in this series now for some time, and we've been talking about identity, and what we've been saying every single week is that the way that we tend to form a self, the way that we tend to form an identity is often by what we do, what we have, or what we desire. That's what we've been saying. Like, we, we, we find a self in what we do. We find a self in the things that we do, like our jobs, and being a parent, or being a really good parent, or being a really good, you know, um, person in finance or whatever we do, we, we find a self there and we become our jobs. We become our, um, we become, you know, everything about us, like being a really good mom or being a really good dad or being a really good husband, that becomes the truest thing about us. And we form an identity around that. We also form identities around what we have and what we desire. And this is 
fairly easy to do. It's fairly easy to form an identity around what we do because what we do seems to give us value. We, we, we think things like this. I have value because I'm valuable to my company. I have value. You look at yourself in the mirror you're like, I'm a valuable person because my company needs me. Or we might even say that about our family. I'm valuable because my family needs me. Or I'm valuable because my friends need me. I'm always a person that everyone calls when they have problems. I'm, my, I'm the friend to all my friends. And they text message me in the middle of the night and I'm conversing with them about all their problems. My friends need me. Therefore, I have value. I have worth because I'm needed. I'm loved. You're nobody until somebody loves you. And that's kind of what we think. We kind of shape our identity around that. We also do that with things that we have. Things that we have is really easy to form an identity around the things that we have because the things that we have tend to give us worth. We say that we're worthy of love because of my looks. You might say that, like, I'm worthy of people's love because of the way I look. I'm worthy of love because of my money. People love me. I'm worthy of because I have money. Or I'm worthy of belonging because of my possessions, because of what I have. I'm worthy of belonging because of my talents. Now, if you trace this out, it's obvious that you can also put the negative side to this as well. You can see the negative side really easy. I'm not valuable because I'm not valuable to my company. The second you're no longer a value to your company, the second you get laid off or fired, you're not valuable anymore. Or I'm not valuable because I'm not valuable to my friends or my family. I'm not valuable, I'm not worthy of love because of my looks. I don't look good enough to be worthy of people to love me. I I don't perform the way I need and should perform, and we don't want to even accept people's love for us. Like, you don't understand, I'm not worthy of your love. And we even turn this to God. God, I'm not worthy of your love. I, I haven't performed the way that I should perform. See, we wrap up our identities so much in what we do and things that we have, even our desires, even our wants. But Jesus comes along and he teaches that the only way to find a true self is to lose ourselves. Mark chapter 8 says this. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. That word life there is the Greek word suke. It's where we get the word psychology. Whoever wants to find a self, if you try to find yourself, you'll lose it. But whoever loses self, identity, for my sake, and the gospels will save it, will find it. For what, if, what is a profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? This means Jesus is saying that your personhood, your personality, your identity, the core of one's being cannot be found in trying to find yourself. It's not trying to find yourself in your work. It's not trying to find yourself in your money, your possessions, the things that you're good at, the things that you're bad at. It's not found there. If you remember last week, I shared um, a C.S. Lewis uh, analogy or, or an illustration. He said it's imperfect, but it was brilliant. He was, he was talking about um, uh, how, how if, if, I, if I turn to Christ and, and he becomes a true thing about me, won't I lose my sense of like self? Won't I like get absorbed into Christ and I just become this kind of like um, Christian just like everyone else and I think the same and act the same and I just look the same? And C.S. Lewis used this brilliant example of if everyone lived in the dark and the light would shine on them, the, the people that live in the dark would think, well, if the same light shines on all of us, won't we look the same? He's like, no, no, it'll actually bring out how different you are. It'll actually bring out the real you. And that's the same thing with Christ. But then he goes on to say this in his book, Mere Christianity. 
I am not, he writes, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call, quote, me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, he says, when I give up myself up to his personality, this is the very end of the book, that I begin to have a real personality of my own. Your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Does that sound strange? The principle runs through all of life from top to bottom. Give yourself up and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your, of your being and you will find eternal life. He says, look for yourself or as Jesus says, try to find yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Um, a girl by the name of Brene Brown who, was, um, who wrote a, a book called The Wholehearted Life. She, was, she has a couple of very popular TED Talks. In her, I'm sorry, she wrote a book called The Gifts of Imperfection. The subtitle is a whole heart, Living a Wholehearted Life. She's a researcher. And she does all these research. She researches uh, human wholeness, human wholeheartedness. How does someone live with courage and wholeheartedness? And she says in her book, she observes in her book, Gifts of Imperfection, quote, we are, we are and this is I think what C.S. Lewis is saying when we try to find ourselves. She says, in trying to find ourselves in ourselves, she says, we become, we are the most obese, medicated, addicted, and in-debt Americans ever. Like, happy 4th of July. You guys wanted a 4th of July quote? 4th of July? There you go. And, she, and so she writes this book, when we try to find a sense of self in ourselves, we become the most medicated, obese, in-debt people ever. Because we always are, we don't, we don't get down to the core, the root of the problem. And this is exactly what C.S. Lewis is saying. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. You try to find yourself, you'll lose it every time. You'll lose it to debt. You'll lose it to addictive behaviors. You'll lose it to self-medication. You'll lose it to all of these things. You will lose yourself if you try to find yourself. But if you lose yourself in God, if you lose yourself in Christ, you get a true self. You get a self that's immovable, unshakable, that can go through life's difficulties, that can go through life's challenges, that can go through life's even disciplinary actions, knowing that every single thing that you go through isn't punitive. It's not like God's punishing you. It's restorative. Because Christ has already paid all the penalty on the cross. God doesn't go, you're going to pay for that sin. That was paid for on the cross. And what God does now when he disciplines us, he restores us. He makes us more like himself. The only way that we can find a real self is if we turn to Christ and lose ourselves. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here in Mark 8. And it's not just doom and gloom. You might look at this and you're like, wait, so in order to find myself, I have to lose myself? I have to ignore myself? I have to lose a sense of self? I have to forget all of my possibilities? That's, That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's Eastern philosophy. That is not the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus are saying, look, do you want to save your life? This is how you save your life. Do you want to find a real self, a true identity? This is how you do it. He's not wanting you to lose your life. He wants you to save your life. But if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. He wants you to save it. You want to save it? Lose your life in me and you will save your life. 
We typically think that the way to save our lives is to hang on to everything that we have that comes in our grasp, money, material things, people, relationships, experiences, family, and we just hoard things. And they define us. And we get a self and self-worth from these things. But what Jesus says here, he says, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world? Now, I want you to think. I know there's a lot of, a lot of fairly young people in this room. What if you got all of your career's aspirations, all of your goals for your career? What if, what if you got to use your grad degree to the fullest potential? You got you to make and, and get the, the perfect person, the perfect family. What if you gained all of that and lost your soul? A lot of us, that's the most important thing to us right now. Like we want to we set ourselves in our career. Our careers drive us. And because we're so overcome by our careers, a lot of us, what we've heard, what I've heard through this series is, and, and community groups that have been talking about this series is, okay, so I'm not my job. I like that message because my job says that I'm my job. But you're saying I'm not my job. That's actually good. Okay, so what do I do about my job? Do I quit? Do I go to my job and say, I'm not my job, boss? I'm not staying here until midnight tonight, boss? Like, what do you do? How, how then do I work? If work is not my, is not my life, how do I work with a 60-hour-a-week job? And I say, that's a very good question. And that's why I, I want to talk about today. I think this is going to be probably the most practical teaching that we've given in this series because I really want to help you see your jobs and your careers according to your new identity. And this is kind of how I want to frame it. If I'm not what I do, if I'm not what I do, or what I have, or what I desire, this is what we've been talking about for 10 weeks. If I'm not what I do, what I have, what I desire, then how does my new identity in Christ shape what I do, what I have, and what I desire? Because you're still going to do something. You're still going to have stuff. You're still going to desire and want. How does your new identity shape those things? First, let me start by saying this. I believe when it comes to work and vocation, I believe that the hope and the goal for the church should not be to make pastors or get people on staff at the church. That is a great side effect. That is not the goal of this church. Our goal isn't to go, how do we get everyone on staff at the church? How do we pay everyone? How do we make pastors? That's not the goal of the church. The, the hope and the goal of this church and the church is to make disciples of Jesus who live in the world, and we would say, who live in San Francisco for the rest of their lives and raise babies and have families in San Francisco. We, that's what we desire more than anything. We want you to live out your, your new identity in the midst of the, the tech industry, finance, um, education, all of these different fields. We want you to embody the gospel and the story of God in a specific vocation. One author says it this way, Christians should see their occupational placement, I like that, that's probably better than job, occupational placement as a part of God's greater mission. You don't work at jobs, you serve in vocations. You serve in, what, that, that would be a really good thing to put on your refrigerator and read yourself in the morning when you're about to leave work. You serve in a vocation. A lot of us just have a job. We, we have this awful and sinful proclivity to think that our work is just a means to a paycheck. Like, yes, I, I go to work. Why? Well, because I'm, I'm making a paycheck. 
I'm building my resume. I'm building my portfolio. I have to do it. And this paycheck allows me to live in San Francisco, allows me to go to great restaurants, give to the church, and do all these other things I want to do, but I just got to go earn my paycheck. So we put up with the job for two years because it builds our resume, it builds our portfolio, allows us to feel free in the city, and we don't believe that our work, even if it is a two-year time in an in a, in a intense internship or startup company, we don't believe our work as being important for advancing and announcing and embodying the kingdom of God in the Bay Area. We don't see that, and we, you need to see that. No matter how mundane your job is, no matter how, how good at your job you are, no matter how, how exciting your job is, you have to see it as an extension, as a part, as you playing a part in advancing and announcing and embodying the kingdom of God. There's a, an illustration that I heard some time ago about um, there was this, this, um, this guy that came up to a quarry. And there were, in this quarry, there was people working really hard, um, hewing stones. And someone asked, okay, so they, they started going up to these workers, what are you, guys, what are you doing? And one worker said, well, I'm hewing a stone. Chisel, hammer, doing my thing. Okay, goes up to the next worker. What are you doing? It's like, I'm making $1,000. Like, I, I, I do this, and I get, I get $1,000 at the end of the week. And he goes to another person, what are you doing? He goes, I'm building a cathedral. A lot of you guys think, what do you do at your job? I work on computers. Computer, I just like type buttons and numbers and just, some of you guys are going, I get paid. That's what I do at my job. I get paid. It's pretty rare that you see your job as an extension to the architect. Like, I'm working with the architect to bring about the renewal of God in this small little field that I'm in. You need to start seeing it that way. If God has redeemed you, any work can be redeemed. Well, most any work can be redeemed. And we have this way of thinking, and one of the best ways to think about this and to frame it in our minds is think about how the Bible begins. If you've never read the Bible before, chances are you're going to turn to Genesis. I turned to Job. I don't know why. I just did. It was in the middle. I usually skip to the end when I read books. But, but if you're normal, you might go to Genesis, okay? So if you go to Genesis and you start reading Genesis chapter 1, many of you guys have read chapter 1 through 5, and then after that it gets kind of blurry, so you go like, I just read chapter 1 over and over and over again. If you've read Genesis chapter 1, you're going to notice a couple things. God himself at the very beginning of the Bible is presented and represented as a, is, is represented as a worker. He works. The very beginning, he works. He creates with his hands, with his mind. He talks it out within the personhood of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image. He's a worker. You also notice this. This is very important for a lot of you. God keeps rhythm in his work. This is God who doesn't need to rest, who doesn't need anything. He still keeps rhythm in his work. Night, day, work, rest, rhythm. It might be good for you to remember that. There should be rhythm in your work. There should be night, day, there should be work rest. This is how God set it up. So when he created us, he created us in his image. He created us the same way. There was actually a law of God saying, you better rest. He actually made the land rest. 
You have to work the ground for this many years, but let it rest a year. You have to let things rest. You were created for rest. You have to rest. So God keeps this rhythm in his work. Also, you'll notice that God steps back and calls what he made good. I love that. God makes something, he steps back, he goes, okay, that was actually pretty good. He has complete job satisfaction. He walks away from his work and goes, what I just created was good. So God has not only rhythm, but he has job satisfaction. And as he created us, humanity, he created us in his image to work as well. He planted a garden. Adam and Eve put them in the garden to cultivate it, to work it. I want you to take the garden that I've made. I want you to rearrange it and bring, bring about flourishing. I want, I want flourishing to happen here. And then we know later Adam's descendants pictured as building cities, raising livestock, making musical instruments, and playing them, forging tools, culture. God has created us to build and make culture. And San Francisco is one of the hotbeds for that. I think Andy Crouch said, uh, the difference between nature and culture, nature gives us eggs, culture gives us omelets. It's a really good way to look at it. And this is what God, God says, here, here I've planted my garden now, I've planted the garden now, you tend it and you make it just beautiful. And you make it fruitful and you, and you toil and, and there was, and I don't know if you, if you realize this, but there was work before the fall. If you're like, oh my gosh, work is so evil. Well, maybe but work was pre-fall. Work happened before the fall of man. So no matter how much you hate your job, you were created. You and I were created to work. John Stott comments on this. He says, our work, no matter your profession, whether you're teaching, medicine, law, social service, architecture, advertising, in industry, commerce, media, wealth, management, art, or in the home, we need to see it as being in." cooperation with God. Do you see your job? I don't know where you work. There's so many different fields here. Do you see your job as being in cooperation with God? Let me just challenge, just say to you, not challenge, but just let me encourage you, if you do not, would you please talk to one of us and let us find someone who's in the church that does a similar field and you guys just wrestle through what it means to be a Christian and embody the kingdom of God in your job? Or let, we would love to work with that as well, through that as well. I, I remember sitting with, not too long ago, sitting with um, um, some doctors at UCSF or, doctor, or people that were um, doing their, um, some of them were in the residency, some of them were still in med school. And I was talking to them about the kingdom of God, and then afterwards I did Q&A, and the Q&A, what was circulating around this room of these doctors were this, how do we bring biblical ethical kingdom of God practice into our work. And so we were doing situational things, and I would, they would say a situation, and then I would give what I thought was an answer, and I realized, you know what needs to happen here? There needs to be mature Christian doctors that are mentoring you. They go, this is how you need to see your job as bringing in the kingdom of God in medicine. That needs to happen in technology. That needs to happen in physical sciences. That needs to happen in finance. That needs to happen everywhere. We need, we must do this. You have to see your job as an in occupation and in cooperation with God. See, the thing is, though, due to our brokenness and the unraveling of Shalom in Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden we have a very hostile work environment. Some of you guys can relate to this. You're like, yes, my work environment is very hostile. 
Genesis 3, that's exactly, what, that's exactly what happened. The fall happened. All of a sudden, the ground was cursed. Adam had a sweat to work. He had to, there was thorns and weeds that grew on the ground. The ground grew hard. He had to work it, and it was intense. His, their hearts grew hostile. So the first recorded murder, the context of murder was what, what, what they produced, what Cain and Abel made, they presented to God. And Cain's wasn't accepted the way that Abel's was, so Cain lashed out and committed murder in the context of, this is what I do. So jealousy and rage in the context of work. So now, because of the fall, in our work, we try to find ourselves. In our work, we cheat, we lie, we sleep with someone to try to advance our career. We try to change who we are to fit in at work. We work too much. We lose rhythm of work and rest, night and day. We self-medicate. We try to find quick rest in a club or a one-night stand or a glass of whiskey or overeating or spending our entire paycheck on some lavish vacation. But what if we can see our work as an act of worship? What if we can see our work? What if our new identity in Christ enabled us to find meaning in our work that was eternal, that affected the common good, that fulfilled us as workers and brought glory to God? Our identity, our new identity in Christ means that Jesus didn't just save us from something, but Christ saved us to something. I want you to get that kind of burned in your head. A lot of times the church talks like this. Christ saved us from something. You're saved from the penalty of sin and death. That's true. You're saved from hell. That's true. You're saved from condemnation. That's true. You're saved from brokenness. And that's true. But did you know that you're saved to something as well? You're saved to something. Christ didn't just save you to like, you're saved from sin and guilt and all this other stuff. Yeah, I can just do whatever I want now. No, you're saved to something. Christ saved us to good works to restoration, to be ministers of reconciliation, to the common good, partnering with God in the renewal of all things. Here's a couple of verses. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. That word is poema. It means like this masterpiece, this poem, this work of art. We are created in Christ. And the way that Christ weaves our life together is for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. This is kind of what we've been talking about. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Come, and this is all from God, who through Christ, listen, this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Okay? That's the from He's reconciled us from sin. He's reconciled, brought us back to himself. But here's the two, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you know that in your job, where you go to school, as you're preparing, if it's in the home or at school or at work, wherever it is, you are a minister of reconciliation. Your job is to bring reconciliation wherever, to embody reconciliation wherever you go. And it goes on to say that is, in Christ... God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, because Christ is in us, the message of reconciliation. 1 Corinthians says, so whatever, whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 
And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him in Colossians 3. Christ has saved us to something. And the key part of that too is your vocation. Martin Luther said, the entire world is full of the service of God. The entire world is full of the service of God, not only the churches, but the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the field of the townsfolk and the farmers. For God will be working all things through you. He will be milking cows through you. He will be performing the most menial duties through you. And all duties, from the greatest to the least, least will be pleasing to him. You have to begin to see your life in your vocation as a calling from God. Now, what does that look like? Let me, let me just make it real simple for you. You're like, okay, this is pretty big, and so I go into my work, and I'm, I'm in charge of just kind of like overseeing this, I don't know, whatever. I, don't, I can't even think of an example. I'm just, just called to do this weird, menial thing. How do I bring in God in that situation? Okay, let me just give you a really quick, easy way that you could just leave with. Ephesians 4, we started with this when we, um, when we opened up the, the teaching. Did you notice that Ephesians 4, as it's on the screen, there you see this old self to new self. You start to see this restoration from something to something. Look at, look at the first part. You have a restoration of lying to speaking the truth to your neighbor. Okay? So you are restored. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you are restored. Now, God wants to redo all of your members, your mouth, your eyes, your nose, your hands, your feet. He wants to redo them, restore them. Now, so no longer use your mouth for lying. Use your mouth to speak the truth. No matter how high pressure your job is, how demanding it is, don't lie. Speak the truth. Notice the next thing. A restoration of anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So it's this, this, this restoration from blowing your top and getting angry to being provoked. To go, in your anger, do not sin. If you're angry, get provoked. Don't get angry at someone. Cause your anger to, to be poured out on something that's evil, not on people. And then don't let the sun go down on your anger. So if you're, if you, if you're kind of like a hothead at your work and you tend to say things that you don't mean, first of all, stop. That would be good. But if that does happen, make peace. A restoration of stealing to working with your hands and being generous. Some companies lie, cheat, steal to increase profit margins. Don't do that. Instead of stealing to increase profit margins, work harder and then be generous. Why don't you guys, those of you that have been transferred in the kingdom of the beloved son, now no longer steal, but work with your hands and then give generously to those in need. See this restoration from something to something? A restoration of language where you're not tearing people down, but you're building people up. A restoration of retaliation and bitterness to being kind to one another and tenderhearted. This is how you are. This is how I am supposed to work in our jobs. We are restored, and now we are called to be restorers. This is best illustrated 
in the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, in Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus was a small man. He might, he might have had a small man complex, small. He was a uh, tax collector, chief tax collector, so he, was, he, 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 got, he became rich by extorting his fellow Jews. He was Jewish, and he was extorting Jews in the name of Rome to make money. He was hated. But he heard Jesus was coming to town. So he, but he couldn't see Jesus because he was short, and there was a crowd of people. He's a small man. He was like trying to jump, and, but everybody like, I don't know, like pushed him down, tripped him. I don't know. They just didn't like him. So he climbs up on a tree to see Christ. It says in Luke chapter 19, so he ran ahead and climbed up onto a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to this place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, when the people saw it, they grumbled and said, oh my gosh, here he goes again. Jesus has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And when Zacchaeus received him, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone anything, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. When Jesus goes into his house and Zacchaeus receives Christ into his home, he's sitting with Jesus. The, the sign of salvation is this, is this like change of identity. No longer is he this rich, angry, bitter person. He's released. He's free. And so he says this, I'm generous now. I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone, I'm going to give fourfold back. I'm going to restore what I've taken. I'm going to restore what I've done wrong. I'm going to make it right. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this home. See, Jesus didn't just tell this, this man, Zacchaeus, hey, Zacchaeus, you should quit your job. He inspired the tax collector to, res- to repurpose his work. To be honest, not to take advantage of people, return fourfold what he had taken. See, a lot of times when we're redeemed by Christ, he doesn't want to uproot us from our jobs. He wants to transform us in our jobs. We have to see our jobs as bringing in the restoration of God. Now, the, the way this happened was a response to Jesus, a response to Christ who was seeking Zacchaeus out, who was looking for Zacchaeus, seeking Zacchaeus when he was lost in his job, lost in his sin, lost in thinking that he that having and all the money and all the recognition would fulfill Zacchaeus, but it didn't. Christ came not just for the poor, but for the rich. He came for the lost. This is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do, to seek and save people who are lost, lost in their jobs, lost in their sin, lost in their brokenness, to redeem that's what Christ has done. And the reason, and the way he's done it was through his work, his work on the cross, his taking the penalty of our sin upon himself, going to the cross, dying for us, that we could be redeemed, that we can be restored 
to reconcile us to himself that we can become ministers of reconciliation. This is what Christ has done, and this is how Christ wants to restore. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, that it's powerful, that I believe in its, in its power. I say that now, that I believe. I believe in its power. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe in a very simple, practical sermon like this, you can save people. I believe that those that try to find themselves in their work can rest and have rest for their souls this morning. I believe that you can inspire people to be in education and physicians and working at a coffee house and in finance. and all. You could inspire people to bring about the kingdom of God. I believe that you can restore people from lying to spreading the truth. You can restore people from anger to restoration. You can restore people from stealing to working hard and being generous. You can restore the language that people use, tearing people down to actually building people up. I believe that you could send these people into their jobs and their vocations to be an encourager. I believe that you can do this, God, by the power of your spirit. And I just, we just need your help, though. And this is who we are. This is who we really are. And forgive us, God, when we live out of something we're not. We try to fit in at work. When we make work way more than it is. Christ is our life. Our jobs, our careers, our education is not our life. Christ is our life. We say that together in Jesus' name. Amen.